You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a Senior Editorial Manager at CyberArk, the global leader in identity security. Digital innovation is advancing society in countless ways. But just as innovation is a force for good, it's also helping cybercriminals catch even the most prepared organizations off guard. Fighting attacker innovation requires a level of innovation that can only be achieved through a collaborative approach, one that brings diverse backgrounds, perspectives, and solutions together to strengthen cyber resilience from every angle. A lack of diversity across cybersecurity teams, approaches, and solution sets can create bias-driven blind spots, hindering our collective ability to see what's ahead, adapt with agility and creativity, and solve some of today's biggest challenges. We need more diversity across every facet of cybersecurity and have much to learn from those who are breaking down barriers and driving change in their own organizations and across the industry. They're demonstrating how diversity can become a powerful tool for cyber defenders. And that's the focus of today's episode of Trust Issues. Today, I talk with Melissa Carvalho. She's the Vice President of Identity and Access Management at Royal Bank of Canada. It's an interesting conversation, and we cover a wide range of topics, including her perspective on the importance of diversity and inclusion in cybersecurity. And this is really interesting considering her perch is at a large financial institution where identity is always top of mind. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy it. One of the things I thought was really interesting when we were hoping to get you on the on the podcast and, and started digging around a little bit and putting some pieces of the puzzle together is really how foundational identity seems to be for you. You've talked a lot about identity being foundational to digital transformation, but you also have a passion for workforce identity inclusion. Is that intersection a coincidence? You know, it's funny, David, because until you asked me that question, I didn't really think about it. I don't think it's a coincidence, but it's not intentional because it it just matches two of my passions. So learning more about people, the psychology of everything, and then the logical aspect I have, the efficiencies, the working to provide solutions to individual, and the two just marry nicely, my my sense of fairness as well, and wanting rules to be put in place. Interesting. So Let's go into workforce identity inclusion a little bit. How much is it a part of your day-to-day now? So I think what you mean when you talk about workforce identity is the traditional identity and access management. And for me, that started just with being a consultant and putting solutions in place. I couldn't tell you 20 years ago how many organizations did not have processes to have or onboard an employee into the organization and get them access. And so I became a consultant across North America providing solutions. And no one solution was the same. Every organization I entered had a different need or a different problem. And so I I went from putting onboarding solutions in place to start looking at what type of access people had, privileged access, or things like too many passwords, single sign-on. And 
the opportunities just kept coming and the, the solutions were just there to be, to cross section them and just to be innovative about it. So um, I just haven't found the time to take a break in the identity space because it just keeps growing. Your team at Royal Bank of Canada is, looks like you've, it's about 250 plus and you've got 86,000 employees and 17 million clients. Um, if there is a way to pinpoint the biggest challenge um, in advancing enterprise security there, uh, and maybe it's not just one, what, what, what's top of mind? So I think we've gone up slightly. We're at now 88,000 employees, but um, so it's changed ever so slightly. But um, I would say there are four areas. I wouldn't say there's just one. And it speaks to the complexity of the cybersecurity landscape. So if I were to summarize just quickly the four, one is the skills shortage in cyber. We just, it, our talent is our differentiator in the cyber workforce or in, in, in the cybersecurity landscape. And we have a skills shortage globally for, for cyber talent. That coupled with the fact that our attack surface has increased. So if you look at things like the fact that we had to virtualize our workforce during the pandemic, we had the race, many organizations, if you think of restaurants and grocery stores, they had to push out digital technologies because otherwise they couldn't operate um, during the pandemic. And then you look at all the increase of tech, tech options, um, cloud, SaaS apps, the many identity technologies, that adds to the complexity. And then if you look at two other areas, so the fact that cyber is no longer just the cyber team, it's from your board of directors to your customers. And so we have to educate all of those individuals to help us build this solution. And then finally, trying to prioritize all of this. So whether we prioritize an incident versus a possible threat versus the regulatory landscape um, and the business drivers, all of these things add to the complicated landscape of trying to deliver cyber solutions. So that's a pretty big puzzle right there. How do you prioritize? How do you educate? I think you have to be agile, number one, and change as the times change. You need to actively listen to um, the people uh, and the business and the marketplace. But education is a really unique area. Um, having a teaching degree, it's, it's even more unique to me. When I think about education, I think of tackling different learners and different audiences. So I think about things like media and video type training whether it be longer um, sessions or even one of the things RBC did was something called a six second rule that we offer to our customers because um, from an attention span perspective, it would be something really quick that they could watch to help educate them um, on cyber. But then it's also getting to universities and traditional forms of education and offering that as well as some people learn better if they teach instead of just listening. And so as they're teaching people, they are also educating themselves. Hmm. And if all of those carrots don't work, then you have the stick. So when the violations occur, there has to be a consequence for a violation. And sometimes, unfortunately, that's the best teaching for individuals. Because no matter how much you say something and offer material, sometimes the best learning is when you make a mistake and then learning from that mistake. So it's interesting that you mentioned both employee and customer education. How do your efforts to to educate both employees and customers differ? And is one or the other more difficult? I don't know that they differ. The method in which we educate both of them are very similar. 
I guess for customers, we don't put a consequence in place. <laughs> I think we would lose the customer if we ended up trying to put a policy violation or a consequence in place. So maybe that's one of the differences. Uh, I think we spend more time educating our employees. And I'm not sure that's as helpful as educating customers. So you see a shift in our recent focus where we're now starting to educate the customers. Um, because when our employees especially are educating the customers, they're also learning in the process. They're learning how to address questions and they're educating themselves in the process. So I think you're seeing a shift, not only in our organization at RBC, but at organizations across the industry, because we've started to realize that if our customers understood cyber better, then they're helping us in this mission as well. So how far along is that shift and how much further does it need to go? I don't know if I could speak to the industry, but I could speak to RBC. I would say that if I looked at the last year, a lot of our focus is on educating our customers. So where we put our spend is on educating customers, building videos, building material, um, working with our customer facing portions of our business and educating them to then educate the customer. And um, so I would say we're pretty far along our journey. We still do continue to educate our employees. And then something else we spend time doing is trying to build the next degree of talent. So looking at universities and other educational institutes, because we do have a cyber shortage or skills gap. So you mentioned that a couple of times. How from your perch are you, you know, helping to or attempt to address that situation? So I think in this case, it marries my, um, my desire for fairness and diversity and inclusion. And so if I were to look at it, there's a couple of areas. Number one, women and gender. And so when we look at that, getting more women into the workforce. So, uh, you know, I've always been a woman and always loved IT, been in cyber for as long as I've had a career. But I didn't really appreciate it until I was being asked to speak at keynotes and other, other venues because I was a woman. And it was really frustrating to me because I thought, I don't understand this. It's what I've always been. But on my journey, I've learned that representation matters. And so just standing up there on a stage and speaking made a difference to people. And that created something in me, a desire to make change, not only in what I was doing, but across the teams I worked with. Because many women were being turned away from cyber because they had a bad experience or being turned away from tech because of a bad experience. That led to RBC um, not only my experience, but a whole slew of other experiences, but leading to RBC founding a program at a local university here. It's now the Toronto Metropolitan University, but it was really focused on trying to get more diversity, bridge the skills gap, and start putting out more content um, out there for people to grow in the space. Even people who had a career and are moving to another area, just to get them into the cyber workforce. Another very important part of this was um, active listening, because during the pandemic, many women left the workforce. And so it was trying to get our teams to start listening to the needs, changing the work hours, accommodating, you know, if they had young kids at home, allowing that to happen, because many women felt uncomfortable having children in the background when they put their camera on. So just a lot in that space. Touching upon your work for the Women in Identity organization, for which you're a Canadian ambassador, how does that come into play within, you know, where where you sit within Royal Bank of Canada, or is it, you know, is it strictly a, a side passion project? How do they merge? 
Wow. So I met Women in Identity a number of months before the pandemic. And I just, I, I was at a conference, heard a, a number of things they had to say, and it just made so much sense to me. So I'll give you some examples of that. Things like our favorite Alexa or Siri or um, Google, what we were finding was they were coding biases into that tech. And so we talk a lot about artificial intelligence, machine learning, but if we're naturally as humans biased and we code that into the tech, then the tech will also be biased. Another thing they mentioned was something as simple as facial recognition. So things like the phone that I had, um, I had to change the phone because for the color of skin that I have, it didn't work in dark lighting for me to unlock my phone. And it became a frustrating thing being in cyber and have to always be connected to have to worry about a biometric issue. And so these things made so much sense to me that after the conference, I came back to the organization as RBC and I was just talking on and on. And so somehow the two have just merged um, together. But the Women in Identity Org is something I'm deeply passionate about. And it's a group of individuals who are passionate about um, getting rid of bias. One of the recent projects they have is what we call a code of conduct. And it's looking at globally setting the minimum standard for identity whether it be government or a financial organization, to try and ensure that um, solutions that are built for everyone are built by everyone. And it's, it's opened so many doors for me to learn about other things because diversity and inclusion is not just gender and race. There's so many other areas. How does that potentially factor into your day-to-day purview when it comes to security within a large financial uh, institution? When you think about diversity and inclusion, it's really not just gender and race. It's things like creed, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, ability. And so when you find those real life examples and then you bridge the gap to security, uh, it becomes easier because a lot of the threats and attacks in cybersecurity are exploiting vulnerabilities. One example I talk often about is, and this is in the news, it was in the news in 2019, but the UK government issued biometric passports. Uh, which is a great idea, extra security coming into the country, except it didn't work for people of color, specifically women of color. And so when you think about that example of trying to get into a country and people of color, women of color, it's not working for them, think about what the bad actors can do to exploit that situation to get in. Now, they subsequently fixed it, so I'm not highlighting anything that's open to create more attacks, but those are the type of real-life examples that... um, show how the two intersect, diversity and inclusion, and cybersecurity. What's something crucial that you have learned from working at a large financial institution um, that might be valuable for somebody working at a smaller organization that probably has nothing to do with being a financial institution? That's interesting. So I've, I've had both small organizations and large organizations, whether it be financial or not, worked in various industries. And I can tell you that one of the valuable things of working at a large organization is you don't need to be an expert in everything. And so sometimes you can rely and collaborate with other people uh, and it helps you just deliver faster because you have different people to work with and they can each take a portion of a solution and implement it. It's a double-edged sword though, because when you have a lot of people, then you have to communicate better, align better, and everybody has different competing priorities. So if you're in a small organization, it's not something that necessarily you have to feel bad about because um, sometimes what happens is we get lost with too many people and too many competing priorities. And so uh, it's a double-edged sword. 
with financial institutions, there are lots of regulations. With smaller organizations, there may not be those regulations. How do the regulations play into um, your day-to-day cybersecurity hurdles to overcome, and how do they potentially help get over those hurdles? I'm not sure the regulations impact the size of the workforce as much as the size of the customer base you're offering. So if you you could be a small organization but deliver a solution globally, and from a regulatory landscape, it, it, it depends on the region you're operating. And so the complexities around regulation come in from all the different regions you're operating because they might be in conflict or to become experts in each of those spaces. For RBC, we're a global organization. And so learning all the different regulatory requirements in each of the regions and trying to offer a solution that meets all of those um, can be challenging at times. You try and offer the, the highest level of security. And so that's one solution to trying to bridge the gap with all of these complex solutions. But there's different regulatory bodies and different groups you have to answer to and different information. And so um, we have a whole regulatory division just to deal with those things. And then we're experts in the identity space and we often cross and work together. You seem very calm for somebody who uh, has, a, has a big role like this. What, uh, what keeps you calm? And I guess, you know, counterpoint to that, what keeps you up at night? Uh, I'm not... I don't have caffeine, so I don't drink coffee or um, pop <laughs> wow. or tea. It's only water. So I don't, I, I'm, you know, I'm just naturally energized by all the different work that goes on. But um, I think I think the answer to both those questions is the same, and it's it's my team. It's the, the team of individuals I work with. They keep me calm because I trust in them, and I just have, I feel like I have the best team in the world. I'm sure everybody answers this question the same way, but I really feel like I have the best team in the world. And so... They keep me calm. I don't worry um, about them and their ability to deliver. I worry about them and what keeps them up at night. And I have to tell you, the um, pandemic had me worrying a lot about them because it wasn't about their ability to deliver, but about how all the external factors were impacting them mentally. Um, Mental health is a big concern for me when I think of the team. And just all the things that were going on, whether they had family members that were first-line responders or family members that were sick, whether they had additional pressures, financial pressures due to the pandemic, there was just a lot going on. And so trying to adjust for my team and take care of my team because they do so much work to take care of us is a thing that kept me up at night. What do you think um, a boon potentially to have come from the pandemic is when it comes to your role and cybersecurity? So I believe from an RBC perspective, we were already on the journey for innovation. In everything we did, we had a bold ambition, a curiosity mindset. Um, we were encouraging our people to be more innovative. I think the positives that came out of the pandemic was it forced us to work together because we would not be able to survive if we worked independently. So it forced us to collaborate together it built long-lasting relationship form bonds, and it helped us figure out a way to accelerate to market. So that's one positive that came out of um, everything that we were doing. Another positive that came out of that is our innovation was more around efficiency and automations. Uh, we, we ended up focusing in that way because we just could not tackle all the problems that were occurring. And then maybe lastly, another um, positive that came out of the pandemic was 
we started to look at all the data we were gathering. We have logs, incident reports, other metrics, bridge the gap to become proactive about cybersecurity. So looking at things like um, data analytics and out of the analytics, drawing insights um, out of that. So a perfect example of something that we accelerated is just our implementation of CyberArk's um, PTA, the threat analytics, and pushing that, accelerating that and bringing that up because we just needed to be able to tackle these things faster. What's an example of a great question you've been asked by someone on your team recently that's led to organizational innovation? So um, what your team might have discovered is I run what we call an Ask Me Anything every week. And every week I sit down through a video conferencing facility with the entire my entire org, whoever wants to dial in. And I get about 150, 200 people every week, which gives me anxiety. <laughs> and then they fire questions through this anonymous web app where they just ask me the question so they can hide behind it. And I answer them as honestly as I know. I, I couch it by saying it's not official, it's just the answers, but it's provided a sense of stability. So one of the things that um, I learned through one of these questions was the use of pronouns. And um, the, the team asked me why through video conferencing facilities that we have in the bank and through our emails and our you know, exchange, we weren't leveraging pronouns. And for me, it was a curious question. I needed to learn a little bit about it. I always thought if I put my pronoun forward, it was further ostracizing or discriminating against the 2S LGBTQ plus community. That's what I felt. And through education in this journey, I've realized it's actually quite the opposite. And so coming back to another AMA session, I informed my team of it and said, the, the tech companies don't actually have a solution. And this was a couple, about a year back. They didn't have a solution to automate or put these things in place. And so a fabulous team got together, partnered with other groups and said, this is how identity can help because we keep that data. We can gather that data and then we can inject it into the video conferencing facilities, the emails. And so we put pronouns in place before the tech companies figured out a way to do it. Um, in fact, whenever I log into facilities, I always add my pronouns now um, to my name when I'm adding it. But just a cross section of showing how the work we do in identity and the, the passion for diversity and inclusion kind of marry together to offer a solution. Is it true, aside from the questions that you're, you're getting here today, that uh, there is no such thing as a bad question? Absolutely. And being in teaching, I can tell you there's no such thing as a bad question. If somebody has that question, chances are somebody else has that question. And so uh, I get repeat questions often in my AMA, AMA sessions, but um, I always tackle it with, I haven't answered the question properly. Uh, and so it's up to me to then take that time to explain it maybe in a different way. How does that help you move forward in your role? So before the pandemic, I was very active and I have teams in all different regions. So I would travel to the region to meet people. I really wanted to understand what, what they were interested in, what would make them happy. I firmly believe healthy and happy teams make for stronger teams. But with the pandemic, it's been hard because if I want to meet with 250 people, I have to have individual or smaller group sessions. It just makes it so much harder. You can't have the water cooler chat or just informally see people. And some of the body language that you see in people when you pass by them, you don't get out of just seeing a, a small screenshot on a video. And so the question period and the AMAs have really helped understand what people are thinking. Letting them hide behind an anonymous um, question application 
allows me to hear that uh, and let them feel comfortable. So that psychological safety, wondering if there's going to be a consequence for their question. And so I think it's made me a better leader. It's caused me to adapt in a different way. Uh, My management team has also learned from this experience because they get frustrated with the repeat questions. And so one of the things that we started exploring was neurodiversity and the whole aspect of different people learn in different ways and gather data in different ways. And so it's really caused us to look at how we communicate to people. Some people like being on camera, some people like myself have hated being on camera. And so how do you adapt to the different situations and the different people's needs? So it's just been an interesting experience. Wondering what's something on your to-do list that that maybe has been there for a while and might be there for a while and, and it's going to be sort of weighing on you going into the weekend, but has a relevance to identity or digital transformation or both. What's weighing on me right now is the retention struggle that most organizations are having with their talent and their their practice, their team. And so I have a set of data points as I go into this weekend looking at different things, compensation, education for the team, where they want to grow, development plan, to really try and hear the latest questions the team has been asking. In some cases, the team's not even asking me those questions, but I see it in the industry. And so what I plan on doing this weekend is pulling some of those data points together and really trying to be proactive. I want to make sure if the team works really hard to be taking care of the bank and us, that I'm working equally as hard before they ask themselves that question to take care of them. And so that's what's keeping me up at night and the the homework I have over the weekend. Is there anything that um, that we didn't discuss here this afternoon that uh, that you have a burning urge to uh, to discuss? No, I think we talked on a lot of different topics. We covered a wider range of things. If everybody takes away just one thing from this discussion, it would be the women in identity vision, which just talks about the fact that solutions for everyone should be built by everyone. I think that's a great ending note. Thank you so much for 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 talking with us today. Really excited to have you on the podcast and look forward to talking to you again sometime in the future. Thanks so much, Melissa. Perfect. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Trust Issues. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, constructive comment, preferably, but you know, it's up to you. Or an episode suggestion, please drop us an email at trustissues at cyberarc.com. And make sure you're following us wherever you listen to podcasts. 